today we come before you with praise and thanksgiving in our hearts for all the sacrifice that you endured for our sake, the ultimate sacrifice that has created atonement so that we could be one with you throughout all eternity. So we thank you for your sacrifice through Christ that makes possible our redemption and our membership in your household where our sin had made us unwelcome, we are now welcome not only to be in your household, but to be called your children. And so we give you thanks and praise for that, Lord. We are especially mindful today of those who have suffered and died for the sake of our flag, for the, for the duty they felt to the people at home. And they were willing to go wherever they were sent to fight to protect those they left behind. And so we remember them, Lord. We remember with love and appreciation what they gave so that we could live the way we do. It's tempting sometimes, Lord, to forget them. It's easy to put them out of our minds, but Lord, we ask that you always make us mindful of the sacrifices by a few that have done so much for so many. Lord, we do give thanks today also for those who are with us who also served. We give thanks for their courage and their commitment to having their lives under the ultimate authority of the military. They understand your kingship in a way that some of us still need to learn. And so we give thanks, Lord, because they've, they've lived that discipline for the sake of a few for many rather, a few for the many. And Father, today we also are mindful of those who travel this weekend, who vacation, who enjoy the outdoors. We pray your safety for them and protection against uh, dangers and, and harm of all different kinds. We pray, Lord, today for those who are not able to enjoy the holidays because they're confined to their hospital bed or their nursing home or some other form of, of uh, being kept out of the loop by their health, Lord. I needed a better word, but you know what I mean, thankfully. Oh God, we praise you, we give you glory because we are here and we are able. And we thank you that we in our own way are here worshiping and honoring you so that we represent many who either aren't able today or who have not come to need to worship you the way we feel the need. And we pray, Lord, for the sake of those who don't know you yet, that you might hear our prayer, our praise, and our honor, and that for their sake, Lord, for your name's sake, they might eventually come to know you. So help us, Lord, to be a family that is always creating space for those who aren't part of it yet. And Lord, for the many things that are here in this gathering that go unnamed but not unknown to you, we join together in offering our shared love and compassion and praise and glory to you in the name of Jesus, whose words we now say together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Today we're going to read from the Gospel of John. If you'd like to follow along, I'm going to be reading from John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. In your pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1078. By the way, boys and girls, you can go to Attic now if you would like. Thank you, Kimberly, for flagging me down. If you haven't gone to Attic yet, boys and girls, you are welcome to go now. Miss Kimberly's back there waiting for you. I think you've got a couple more customers coming. There she goes. All right. See, I'm lost without Courtney. We're going to read John 20, starting at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. and Put, put, your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other things, many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So as I stated a little earlier, we've gathered here on this Memorial Day weekend to remember all of those who have fallen in the service of our country. And it's unfortunate, you know, that the sales and the picnics and the outings and the vacations tend to overshadow that. But then again, it's sort of a weird backward tribute to the service of those people because we would be so comfortable and relaxed on a weekend like this because of what they've created for us in the way of security. Nevertheless, it is altogether fitting and proper, said Abraham Lincoln, that we should honor them. What we do in America every year at this time, as Lincoln said, the world will little note nor long remember, but it can never forget what they did. That's a good word, isn't it? So make sure you fly your flag this weekend. Make sure that you say a prayer or two for the families who have suffered such loss. Now, it shouldn't be too difficult for us Christians to see the correlation between the gospel message and this Memorial Day message. It's about one small sacrifice, so to speak, one individual sacrifice that affects countless thousands and millions. 
And in that way, we have seen a similarity in this celebration because we, every Sunday, have a sort of Memorial Day. Except for one thing, Memorial Day is a day when we remember fallen heroes, or may I be blunt and say dead heroes. And unfortunately, as I have mentioned to you in last week's message, sometimes we have a tendency to treat Jesus like a dead hero. We have a tendency to think of him as a historical character who no longer lives. And we acknowledge that he's alive in spirit and that somehow we are connected with him, but do we really embrace him as our Lord and our God even now? That was last week's message, and this week's sort of picks up where that one left off. And it's important then that we realize that Jesus is entitled to the homage and respect that we bring each Sunday. I mentioned in the prayer that it is our privilege to come in part on behalf of all those who should acknowledge him but don't. In a way, one of the things you're doing each Sunday when you come to worship is is to say, Lord, not everybody acknowledges you, but we do. And it's not something to take pride in. It's something that you do because it is an indication of his worthship. That's actually what the word worship means. It's a way of acknowledging the celebrate and celebrating the great worth or worthiness of this celebration that is owed to Jesus. And so it's important that when we come to church each Sunday that we come to worship. I know there's a lot of other benefits, don't get me wrong. I know you find your friends here each week and you get great fellowship through the Sunday school classes and so forth. But, but when we come into the house of worship, in this worship space especially, one of the most primary things we do is to seek uh, in ourselves something beyond ourselves so that we can really honor and worship Christ and then hear what you hope and pray will be a word from Christ. And so I want to talk about believing Thomas for a minute. Now, you've heard him called Doubting Thomas for a long time, but I like to call him Believing Thomas. And if you remember from last week, I went to great lengths to explain to you in in not so fun detail just how really devastated Jesus' body was by the time he had died. And so when Thomas says, I'm not going to believe he's here unless I can put my finger in the holes that were left in his body, I personally think that's a description of a body that had holes in it, that was that devastated by the cruel torture and death. So imagine when he turns and he sees Jesus and those wounds are closed but scarred over and those uh, bones that were exposed are no longer exposed and that flesh is now healthy and vital like they remembered him in the best of days and imagine that in that instant he processes what is happening before him and instead of fainting dead away like I probably would he falls to his knees and says my Lord and my God so I'm a big fan of Thomas and I'm not really fond of putting him in the context of doubting Thomas. I think a lot of the 
humorous things that happen in the Bible, especially with the apostles that have kind of led to them being mocked for their behavior. Really need to be rethought when you get serious about your Bible study because you begin to realize that that the story wasn't told in order to give us a little humorous anecdote about so-and-so. It's really told to us so that we can understand their humanity and then see the profound response that they made in this humanity so affected by the presence of Christ. So when I think about Jesus appearing before Thomas and Thomas instantly falling upon the feet of the Savior and calling him Lord and God, I remember that in Scripture, that's the first outright declaration that you hear that Jesus is God. And Thomas was the one that uttered it. And I think it's important then to take that to the next step and to recognize that if Jesus is God and the risen Lord, then we all owe him the same response. Now, I can tell you that in my personal testimony, there have been moments when I've fallen before the Lord and said, my Lord and my God. There have been moments like that because at times in my relationship with God, there are profound expressions of God's presence that I can't ignore. And they usually come right after I've said something like Thomas said. You know, and then I mentioned this to you last week. It's sort of like when somebody says, He's standing behind me, isn't he, right? You know, I've had those moments where I had to recognize that the Lord was present and the Lord was not there to condemn me, but the Lord was a witness to my unbelief and a witness to my, to my foolish speech and my foolish thoughts. And I had to fall on my knees and say, I'm sorry, Lord, I, I'm sorry. Sometimes I forget who you are in my life. I forget to acknowledge your authority over my life. And that's really the theme I want to visit for the next couple of minutes, is that just to what extent do we really acknowledge the authority Christ has over our lives? At the risk of offending some of you, I find that many Christians, and I've been this way myself long ago, viewed my faith in Christ as sort of an insurance policy. It just meant that we could be sure we'd be in heaven when we die. And if that's as far as it goes, it's not the worst thing in the world because we certainly want to be in heaven when we die. We certainly want to be in the presence of our Lord and to live beyond the grave. And, and so it's good that we feel confident about that. But there's so much more to our relationship with Christ than that. And so what I want to recommend is that we take time to really ponder his absolute authority over all things and how we're kind of obliged to acknowledge that in a way that is as repentant and praiseworthy as Thomas's response. Now, the first thing I want to do is give you a little lesson in, in Bible interpretation. Much of what we read in the Bible is not really easy for Westerners to wrap their minds around. You see, Westerners have a different kind of way of looking at the world, and in particular, American Westerners. When I say Westerners, I mean people who are in the developed world and, and in the leadership of world affairs and have the most modern technology and generally the better educated and all of that. That's what we mean when we say Western people. 
and Americans in particular, have a difficult time understanding and accepting Christ in this authoritarian way, in this particular way. And yet there are people all over the world in the less developed countries who read about Jesus and readily recognize the benefit of his authority over them and over the world's affairs. So to get, to get our minds around that, first I want to recommend that you uh, read a really good book called Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus. And in this book, the author teaches us critical ideas that make more sense if you read from a Hebrew-Israel-based perspective. In other words, think about the audiences that Jesus actually addressed when he was physically present on earth and understand how they would have interpreted his words. And when you hear him declare the Christ, the son of the living God, there's so much more there than we particularly Americans would recognize. First of all, the word Christ is a Greek version of the word Messiah, which is a Hebrew word that comes from something that sounds a little bit like Mashiach. And all this takes us to the point that what is meant by the word Messiah is the anointed one of God. Now, that's pretty impressive, but that word has been used in the Old Testament to describe people of less stature than Jesus. And so we will read that people in the Old Testament were anointed by God to be kings, like King Saul. David refused to take the life of Saul when he had the chance to do so because he was the anointed one of God, and it wasn't right that someone should interfere with God's work. And so even though they all knew that Saul wasn't doing a very good job as king, and even though David knew that Saul had it in for him, David refused to kill him because as long as he was the anointed one of God, that wouldn't be the right thing to do. Why does this matter? Well, because when we understand that this anointing of God, as is described when the word Messiah is applied, is meant to say he is the king. And so when we hear that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, what we are supposed to hear is that he is the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is master of all creation, and that includes us. Having understood then that this messiahship is something that grants him absolute authority over all creation sort of changes things if you think about it. For example, when, when Thomas turned and saw Jesus alive and well, recognizing that this same Jesus who had spoken life to the dead and caused them to breathe again, who had healed the sick, who had command over the weather and, and countless other things that they witnessed, he immediately made the connection. Ho, oh, ho, ho, you are the king of creation. You are the master of everything because when you died, by your own authority, you rose again. I mean, you really got to think about that for a minute if you want to understand the profundity of the gospel that what we're hearing is, is that when Jesus died, it was Jesus who rose again. It was Jesus who returned in the 
form of a resurrected person, and it was not someone else who did it, it because, because of the Trinity, and, and by the way, Courtney has a wonderful message planned for you about the Trinity, and when you think about the Trinity, what you understand is that this is God, the Son, who has physically died, but who by being God, the Son, has commanded his own resurrection. You see, it's one thing to somehow be able to make another person live again after they've died. It's one thing to heal a person who's sick with the touch of a hand or the mere thought of the divine mind, but it's really something another while, as they say in the South, to imagine that he has, in fact, executed his own resurrection. This he does because he has absolute authority over all creation. Think about that. That means even the creation that exists outside of our space and time. That means that everywhere, in every conceivable and a variety of inconceivable ways, he is king of kings and lord of lords. And we are to understand that. Now, the problem us Westerners have, Americans in particular, is, is that our whole nation was founded on liberty and justice for all. And that sounds a lot like the gospel until you look at the modern interpretation, and not so modern even, and realize that historically liberty and justice for all basically means I do my own thing and nobody tells me otherwise, right? It's very American to be ruggedly independent, isn't it? It's very American to be self-made successes. Very American to be pioneers and explorers and conquer the land and conquer the, the savage. You know, this is a very American concept and it also makes it very difficult for Americans to wrap their minds around subjecting themselves to the authority of a king. It's funny because even today, as you will know from watching TV and even the affairs of the United Methodist Church, there is this constant tension that exists between our shared responsibilities and our rugged independence. See, that's my really polite way to say there's this tension between two ideologies that have variations that are hundreds of variations, but it comes down to acknowledging that in society we have shared responsibilities that we must acknowledge the needs of others in certain respects and yet there is this uniquely American ideal that is interpreted as an entrepreneurship and independence. And, but what I found is that even the most independent person, the most radically independent person, occasionally needs help. They occasionally need help. And I found that the most dependent person for their own good and for the good of society periodically needs to step up and be independent. From time to time, a person needs to say, I got this, I don't need your help. But when we think in terms of our relationship with King Jesus, it's funny how all Americans can agree on one thing. We don't want no king in this country. Right? We, we threw that whole king idea out a couple hundred years ago, didn't we? I think we're celebrating that in another month or so, right? And we will say, yep, that's the day we celebrated and, and, or we declared our independence from an unjust king. Well, that's the problem with earthly kings is they're almost always unjust in some way or another. 
But there are many kings that history doesn't tell us a lot about because they weren't so bad, really. I want you to think of it this way. If you lived in a third world country ruled by a king or ruled by someone who is king-like in their authority over the community or over the whole country, and you had experienced one injustice after another, and a just king or just leader came into office and cleaned up the corruption and made for peace and harmony in the communities, or at least made consequences severe enough for those who disrupted the greater good, you would celebrate that king, wouldn't you? Or to put it in an American way, if you've watched a good Western lately, you know, like Clint Eastwood, that some towns need a Clint Eastwood to come in and clean up the corruption, right? That, that people live in a town where the criminals are running amok and they're doing all kinds of mischief, and when the new sheriff comes to town and brings justice, people celebrate that sheriff, that leader. They say, hey, there's a new sheriff in town. This isn't such a bad place to be anymore. And here's where I think we have to remember that the concept of a king in the biblical word is much more about a judge than it is about an authoritarian person of royal blood. You know what I mean? Uh, the, the, the idea of kingship in the Bible is meant to be understood more in the terms of being like a judge. And the fact is, is the kings of the Old Testament, Israel, uh, were expected to hold court regularly to judge people's various problems and settle their various issues. This is why Solomon in the early days was celebrated the way he was, because he was particularly wise as a judge. And so when we think of kings, we need to understand that a good king can bring justice and peace and make a happy world wherever they have authority. Now, I know in our history of our country, we've had a real resistance to kings and queens and things, but we certainly have had our share of politicians who tried really hard to behave like kings and queens, didn't they? And so this is really difficult for us as Americans. So what do we do? How do you get your mind around the fact that you have a king, King Jesus, and that you have a, a responsibility to subjugate yourself to him, you know, a subject of the king. You have a responsibility to be at the, serve at the pleasure of your king. How we wrap our minds around the fact that we're not real keen on the whole idea because it's not very American, but it is nevertheless absolutely imperative for a Christian to go far beyond the gift of salvation and become a servant of King Jesus. Well, what it takes is a change of heart. The first thing that changes a ruggedly independent, stubborn individual to a subject to King Jesus is a change of heart. And this change of heart happens, well, like it did for Thomas. See, Thomas had a change of heart in an instant because he took a look at Jesus and realized how wrong he was about Jesus, and he fell at the feet of Jesus and said, My Lord and God. From that moment forward, his life was committed to the obedience that marked the apostles in particular and gave us the church we enjoy today. 
When a person has a my Lord and my God moment, then the heart begins to change. And then you find yourself experiencing a love for Jesus that gives you a sense that there may be other areas of your life that you like being in control of, but you don't want to wrest anything from the hands of King Jesus. And no, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, maybe it does for some people, but for me and for the most people I know, there is an immediate recognition often that Jesus is the Lord and the God that you have been seeking. But it takes time to give up control, especially for us Americans. It takes time for us to let go of our need to have authority over all of our own affairs. But to really live a blessed life, we've got to strive in our prayer and in our actions, in our words, in our associations, we have to strive for subjugation. We have to strive to give up our freedom and independence and take the yoke of Jesus upon us. You know, the yoke is the thing that you put uh, over oxen so that they can work together to pull a cart or, or a plow. It's a yoke is something that, that uh, people would put over their shoulder to carry buckets of water from here to there. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. But he doesn't say anything about not yoking you, okay? He does make it clear that when you accept his authority over your life, you will bear a yoke, a burden placed by Jesus. Well, that's just not something Americans do easily, and the only answer is prayer. Now, as I wrap this up, I'm going to go somewhere that seems really ironic to me, but I mentioned it was Aldersgate Day on Friday, and, and even before I remembered that, I was thinking about John Wesley's conversion. And I was thinking about his resistance to the American Revolution, because his, his, the church and our country, the United Methodist tradition was born around the same time as our country and during the 1700s. And, and when the Americans were rebelling against the king, Wesley wasn't real keen on that. He kind of said, you know, I, I wish you wouldn't do that. And I'm going to really, I know there's some other Wesley scholars in the room, so I'm going to take a real stab here in the dark and say, maybe somewhere deep inside he knew that if we threw off the yoke of England's king, we might turn into a kind of people who would never bear the yoke of any king. And he might have been right if he was thinking along those lines. But I will say that he was never wavering in his support for Methodists in America. But he did say, I don't think it's a good idea to rebel against the king. I don't know. I can't know what was in his heart. But I, I do remember this about him. He was a very entrepreneurial, independent thinker. He was very intelligent and very ambitious. And he began to try to find ways to reform the religious experience in England as he understood it so that it would be more meaningful to him. And this is kind of where the nickname Methodist came from because he was very methodical about it, you know, and he had a real systematic way of approaching it. And so he was the guy who was trying to control circumstances 
and in his way, doing it in, in the hope of creating a better religion. And he took his beliefs and his youth. He went to America and he stumbled and fell in so many ways as he tried to live out what he believed. And then on the way back in a storm, he felt that he might lose his life at any moment. And he recognized that some people on the boat had way more faith in God than he did. And then this altars gate experience happened. This is very famous among Methodists. On May 24th in 1738, Wesley reluctantly attended a group meeting about uh, that occurred on the evening on Aldersgate Street in London, and as he heard a reading from Luther's preface to the epistle of the Romans, he felt his heart strangely warmed. Wesley wrote in his journal that at about 8.45, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt heart, my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Jesus Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So, anybody who is intelligent and hardworking and particularly ambitious is going to find it hard to subject themselves to the authority of Christ. And yet, when you do, it changes your heart, and once your heart is changed, it changes everything. And Wesley serves as a perfect example of that. To turn and see Jesus alive and real and to feel the weight of Christ's presence among us is to have that Thomas moment of recognition of my Lord and my God. And I'm asking you to seek that. I can tell you that while Jesus isn't physically present, as you heard in the scripture, he is very sure that if you will put faith in him and you will trust you will believe just as Thomas did and you'll actually be more commendable than Thomas when you make the profession, my Lord and my God. Let us pray. Lord and God Jesus, King Jesus, we thank you for your word, for the saints of old who have demonstrated countless examples of evidence of their belief in the genuine presence of our Savior and Lord Jesus. Because of them, we can believe until you become our Lord and our God to our face, to us. And so, Lord, I pray this day for everyone here to have a deeper conviction and devotion to you as King Jesus. But I pray especially for those who have not yet recognized you as the living Lord and God. Jesus, we look forward to the day when you will stand in front of us, when you will appear, when we will be face to face with you in the flesh and with our own eyes see you and know that our Redeemer lives. We pray this with love, worship, and hope for your namesake. Amen.